Put your finger there, or a bookmark, or I don't know, a fingernail or something, and then turn over to Psalm 2. We're going to start in Psalm 2 this morning. So Genesis 11, and then, uh, but first Psalm 2. Psalms are in the middle of your Bible, and uh, just the second Psalm will give us a good perspective on the event that we're going to read this morning. Psalm 2 verse 1 reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those are all who take refuge in him. Well, the tale is as old as time. The nations rage. The peoples plot in vain. They set themselves against Yahweh and his anointed son. And God laughs. He holds them in derision. In other words, he mocks them. Who are you to stand up to the creator of the universe or to stand against his anointed son? His king, his kingdom, and his plan cannot be thwarted. No matter how hard the nations, people groups, no matter how hard you try to stop it, God's plan won't be thwarted. And the Tower of Babel, is just one historical illustration of this reality. Here's the point of my sermon today. Here's what I think the point of the Tower of Babel event is. You can write it down, very simple. God gets his way. Write that down. God gets his way. He always has, and he will. He got his way in the flood event with worldwide destruction, and he gets his way at Babel with worldwide dispersion. We've seen it today, generation after generation. They rebel against God. They stand against Him. Culture, society, the world is trying to preach anything and everything that would draw people away from a knowledge of God and a submission to His Word. But God gets His way. God gets His way in history. God gets His way in the nations. 
God gets his way through the rise and fall of empires. God gets his way in America. God gets his way in California. God gets his way in your life. He does. And you can rage. You can fight it all you want. You can set yourself in your life direction in opposition against the God of all glory and over the universe, the creator over all, Yahweh, and his son, his anointed one, Jesus Christ. You can do that, but listen to me. God gets his way with you and with your life. In the end, his word stands. His kingdom comes. His will be done. So I advise you to kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish. We want to find ourselves like those at the end of Psalm 2, blessed, because we take refuge in him and we don't stand against him. And so God gets his way. There's the big message from the Tower of Babel event. Let's get into it. Just nine verses this Sunday morning. And I have three points. First, let's look at God's order. God's order. And his order is dispersion. His order is dispersion. Now before we get to verse 1 and chapter 11, we need to consider the context. We've got to understand the backstory of the Tower of Babel. And the backstory is the flood event. We studied that last week, Genesis 6 through 9. And then when Noah comes to dry land, his family, Mount Ararat, they see that the flood has subsided, but they're waiting for an order. They're waiting for the okay from God. And God comes in Genesis 8, verse 16, and he gives them this instruction. He says, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may swarm on the earth and you, plural, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God repeats in Genesis 9, verse 1. You can see it in the text yourself. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, God is clear. In verse 7 of chapter 9, he gives them this command again. And you, this is plural again, talking to Noah and his sons, Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. What do you think God wants Noah and his sons to do? Be fruitful, multiply, spread out, fill the earth. The command could not be clearer, and it is a repeat from Genesis 1. The dominion mandate given to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. God made this earth to be filled like a cup was made to hold water. To be filled completely. God's not concerned about overpopulation. 
Give him, give him that worry or concern. Listen, when I'm at the dinner table and I tell my kids, hey, finish your plate, finish your plate, they know what I mean. Sometimes they pretend they don't. Say, Dad, can I be done? I told you to finish your plate. I finished my bread. Of course you did. That's the tasty carb. I want you to, when I say finish your plate, I mean the greens, the protein, the meat, everything, the whole thing. That's my expectation. Every nook and cranny. And this is God's clear expectation too. Multiply, spread out, fill the whole earth. Not just part of it. And obedience is to the whole command of God, not just part of His commands, but all of it. The command is given again to Noah and his three sons. If we go back to chapter 9, verse 18, it says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now listen to this sentence in verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these sons all the people of the whole earth were dispersed. If you look at chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Then in chapter 10, you get a list of names. Seventy of them, in fact. Seventy sons and grandsons. We see they obeyed the first part of the command. They were fruitful and they multiplied. They ate those tasty carbs, but we'll see if they obey the full mandate. And then we get to the last verse of chapter 10 before 11, and it reads this. Interesting, Genesis 10, 32. After this list of names, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations... And from these nations, from these men, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. You know what's interesting? And it's no coincidence. If you go across the earth, different cultures, different people groups, in all their historical records, you'll find these names at the top. These are their ancestors. God's word is true. It's accurate. It has authority. From these people, all the peoples of the earth were dispersed. We all came from the people on this list. It's called the table of nations in the scriptures. That is Genesis chapter 10. Now that word nations, important to understand, is the Hebrew word goy. It's translated to the Greek word ethnos, which is where we get the word ethnicity, people groups, nations. And all, so we're told in scripture that all the people groups of the world come from the men on this list. Doesn't matter your ethnic identification, your ancestors are right here. Genesis chapter 10. These are your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. It's fascinating to study your own lineage, by the way. I'd encourage you to do it. Do so. I'm, I'm a descendant of Japheth. 
And I've got a little bit of Tubal, a little bit of Magog, and a little bit of Gomer. But I do find our, my roots here, and you will too, every person in this room. You need to know something, that God is in the genealogies. Don't skip over them. They're incredible displays of His power and His providence. God keeps His promises from generation to generation. You can trace them through genealogies. God accomplishes His purposes from generation to generation. You can trace it through the genealogies. They are Scripture. They are inspired by God and given for our instruction, for us to learn something from them. And if we learn anything from the genealogy, we learn this. God wanted nations, and so He got nations. In fact, He made the nations. And Genesis 11 is going to tell us how he did it, how he spread them out over the earth. There's another cross-reference that's important in Acts 17, verse 26. I think I have it on your outline there. Who's responsible for the nations? God takes full responsibility in his word. He says, it says in Acts 17, 26, and he, reference to God, the creator of all things, made from one man every nation ethnos of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Listen, one God, theos, one race, anthropos, mankind. Many nations, many ethnos, ethnicities. Notice that ethnicity, according to Acts 17, is determined by geographical boundaries and, um, and time periods. And then from Babel languages as well. It's not so much determined by your skin color, right? Or the shape of your physique, your face. Ethnic diversity is God's idea, not man's. It's not a social construct. Ethnic diversity was in God's playbook from the very beginning. Now why? Why would God create or make, take responsibility for a multitude of nations? Well, many nations bring Him more glory. It decentralizes humanity, spreads them out across the earth so that they would not boast in themselves, but their boast would be in God. Many nations God makes to subdue the whole earth, to exercise dominion over every resource that he has provided mankind. And many nations displays the manifold wisdom of God. I love that word manifold, polypoikilos in scripture. It's one of my favorite words. It's a compound word, polis, many, poikilos, diversity, a multitude of diversities. It's in God's wisdom. God's wisdom is diverse. It's multi-sided. It's like a kaleidoscope. With each turn of history and every unique people group on the planet, you can see another aspect of God's infinite, beautiful, multicolored wisdom. God is to be worshipped because of the various ethnicities that we have across the world. And so when we understand race, one race, multitude of ethnicities, according to the, 
Bible or the biblical per- perspective, then we will, as God's people, we will love and respect other human beings created in his image. We're one race. We all come from the same father, Adam. We all come from the same descendants of Adam, Noah and his three sons. We find our origin story there. And so we respect and we love fellow man because we are all have the same essence, the same father were created in the image of God. And we will praise God for his manifold wisdom displayed in the variety that we have on the earth and the variety of gifts, talents, resources, and experiences that people have. But listen, if you understand race and ethnicity from a humanist, evolutionary perspective, you have all kinds of problems. You're going to disrespect your fellow man because you'll think that the differences are a result of a different ape species. Different ape ancestors who have superior or inferior genetics. See, racism is embedded in the theory of evolution. I don't know if you knew that. Natural selection implies that with different kinds, there's different ranks. The strong survive and the weak die off. So how do they explain nations? The strong survive and the weak die off. It's no secret. I don't know if you knew the alternate title to Darwin's Origin of the Species. It's this, the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. It's not a secret that the atrocities of Hitler and the Holocaust were motivated by the evolutionary idea that the Aryan race was superior and that he needed to get rid of all inferior races. That's the evolutionary theory playing out. It's also not a secret that another evolutionist Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, introduced her services as a form of eugenics to rid society of the burden of inferior races. You ask me, is racism systemic in America? Depend on what you mean by that. But it is systemic. It's in the science books. And it's taught to every single child in the public school system. So don't go looking for men up in the ranks of of power. Go to the books, the science books that preach the evolutionary theory, that teach natural selection. Burn those. Burn those. Because that is teaching racism. Different kinds. That's not what God teaches. The Bible tells us that God made the nations. His idea His creation as a reflection of his manifold wisdom. And he is the one who dispersed them across the globe. But regardless of the differences in ethnicity, we have the same God and the same Father, the same ancestors. And so we are one race, equal before God. We should treat each other equally and respectfully and lovingly. This is so important. For us to have the biblical perspective of nations, especially as it relates to the Tower of Babel event. And so God disperses the nations across the globe. How does he do that? Genesis 11 tells us how. God gets his way, right? 
And so God's order was dispersion. The second point is the world's order, which is defiance. The world's order is defiance. Now we're ready for the Tower of Babel event. If we look at verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That literally in the Hebrew is one lip and the same vocabulary. Now, those of us English-speaking people, we know that other people groups speak English words, but they don't have the same lip as us, right? They don't say it in the same way. They don't have the same grammatical structure, maybe. But at this time, the whole world had the same lip and the same words. They were unified in their language completely. And it says, and as people migrated, in verse 2, from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Here's a map of Shinar. Uh, There it is. You can see that it's a strategic place for settlement. It's in the Fertile Crescent. Great access to natural resources. This later became the home base for the Babylonian Empire between the two rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris River. This is, a, this is fertile ground. Prime settlement. Uh, this, is a good, uh, this is a good place for them to settle down. You know, um, and then we go into verse 3. Look at this. And they said to one another... Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and butumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Uh Uh-oh. The nations are taking counsel together. And they're setting themselves against Yahweh and his order. It is defiance. Defiance. They want autonomy. They want to burst their bonds, cast away their cords from God to be liberated from him. They want their own city. They want their own worship center. They want their own name. It's all about us. It's humanism at its highest. You're like, Morgan... How do you get all of that out of those verses? It seems like they're just trying to like make another Dubai or something. Well, it's in the text. It's in the context. This is defiance. First of all, the context. The context tells us the mastermind, the leader behind this city. And his name is Nimrod. Nimrod. We're introduced to Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. In verse 8 it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. In verse 9, it tells us that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and many other cities and nations. Notably, Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire. Nimrod started these nations. He's described in verse 8, look at the text, he's described as the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now, a mighty man is a man of valor. He's described also in verse 9 as a hunter. He's a dominant man. He's not just any man, but he's a dominant man. He's achieved much. He has dominated animals. He has dominated himself, set himself above other people, uh, other men. But that word, or sorry, that phrase, he was the first on earth 
to be a mighty man, that's not necessarily a positive statement in the Hebrew. If you read the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew way of saying that Nimrod was citizen number one. He was earth's most wanted. In fact, that word um, first could also be understood as guilty or condemned or corrupted. The word for mighty man is also used of tyrants. He was a, it says in verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That phrase before the Lord is not positive either. It literally renders in the face of God. And it's not like the Imago Dei. You know, living before the face of God, like to please him and to honor him. This is like the basketball player who makes the shot, waves his hand in front of his opponent and says, in your what? Face. That's Nimrod. That was his approach and his respect for God. All of his achievements, all of his accomplishments on earth were to lift himself up in the face of God, in direct opposition against him. That's Babel's founder. That's their leader. And Nimrod's selfish ambition is clear from his activity. He establishes cities and kingdoms. And if you look at the list, these cities and kingdoms are notorious for idolatry, for violence, for pride. Think about the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. Nimrod's their founder. Look at me. Look at all the things that I have accomplished and achieved. I'm unstoppable in your face, God. And we're told from tradition that the people in Babel, they worshipped Nimrod. Later, the Babylonians would deify him and continue to worship his image, and they called him Marduk, the king of the gods. A prideful man. A prideful man. And although he's not mentioned in this council, it's safe to assume that he established the city, he's leading it, he's motivating this council to occur. Josephus, the great historian, writes this, Nimrod persuaded his subjects not to ascribe their strength to God as if it were through his means that they would be happy. But he persuaded them to believe that it was their own courage which procured their happiness. There have been many Nimrods throughout history. Men like Pharaoh, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Herod, and others. Some even you're mindful of today. Godless men who set themselves against Yahweh, boasting in themselves and persuading others to look within. Look at us. Look at what we can do. We don't need God. We don't need God. Obviously, they're wrong. Nimrod, you could say, is the first humanist philosopher. All of the answers to life are found in us. We don't need anybody outside of us. So we're told from context that this is their leader. This is their influencer. Now look back at the council. What do these people want? Well, we learn from verse 3 that they want longevity. They want longevity. They said to one another, let's make brick and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They were building to last. 
They're playing survivor. They're playing to outlive, outplay, and outlast God with their technological advancement. The bricks burned thoroughly are stronger than other building materials. Butamin is like a tar-like substance, stronger than the typical mortars. They weren't going anywhere. They wanted a city that they can outlive in. You know, when we think about technological advancement, we live in a day of great technological advancement, and that's not in and of itself wrong. It's not wrong to use technology, to use it to our benefit. But it's when its motivation is man-centered and man-glorifying, when the end is look at us and what we can do, when the end is to replace the need for God or the dependence upon Him, that's when it goes awry. And that's what these people are doing. They want longevity. The second thing they want is liberation. They want freedom from God. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, you need to know this is a little more than fancy architecture, okay? The city and the tower are a manifestation for their desire to free themselves, just as Aaron prayed. It was a prideful manifestation to free themselves from God. They can develop their own society, their own culture, and even their own religion. Let's look at the tower. There's a lot of speculation about the tower. You need to know first that the tower was a religious structure. It was first a religious structure. This is the case in all ancient cities and cultures. The centerpiece of the city, the tallest building, was always the place of worship. Always the place of worship. And even the wording, a tower with its top in the heavens, it's not so much a reference to the height of it. It could be translated multiple ways. A tower among the hosts of heaven. It could also be translated a tower devoted to the hosts of heaven. There's an astrological reference here. Perhaps it was the tower to worship the stars. Perhaps it was a tower to live among and communicate with the hosts of heaven, the angels, and not the good ones, the bad ones. Commentators and scholars suggest that this was satanic worship. This was obviously a tower not to reach God or worship Him, but it was a tower to defy God and worship something else. In fact, we're told in Revelation 17 that Babylon is the mother of all prostitutes and the mother of all earthly abominations. It's no secret. History will tell you astrology, false religion, has its root in Babylon. So they wanted liberation from God. And the third thing they wanted was a legacy. They say, clearly, let us make a name for ourselves. Now, if you read Scripture, you know that God is usually the one handing out names. Not these people. They don't want God's name. They want their own name. They want a name for themselves without God in the picture. This is outright defiance. We're told explicitly so, because look at verse 4. They say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
They're not ignorant to the command of God. They almost explicitly repeat it. Like we know that God wants us to disperse, but we're going to do this so we don't have to. It's defiant disobedience against God's clear and explicit command. There's something I want you to notice in their counsels. Come, let us. Come, let us. How many times do you see the pronouns us and ourselves? Who's this all about? Who's this all about? It's about us and it's about ourselves. The height of human rebellion, the defiance, comes out of a self-centered culture. A culture consumed with self. Sound familiar? The decline of humanity. The decline of a society. It's self-destruction. Is when people take their eyes off God, take their eyes off of the good for their fellow man, and direct their eyes towards themselves. You want to you ask me, you know, what, what has contributed to the decline of Western civilization, Western society, America, California, whatever, whoever you have beef with? Why, why have we declined in such a, an immoral state? One word, selfish. Self. When self's at the center, society unravels. Watch out for the sermons of the world that focus on self. Watch out for the music of the world that focuses on self. Watch out for the podcasts of the world that focus on self-improvement, your self-image, your self-confidence, and whatever else. Even if they say they're Christian. What's the message of the world? Love yourself. Treat yourself. Improve yourself. Self-image. Self-confidence. My feelings. My body. My sexuality. My truth. Watch out. That's the message of the enemy. That's the message of Babel. It's all about us. It takes our eyes off the Almighty and the God. It's the boastful pride of life. And it's the self-destruction of society. Me, myself, and I. What do we do when we know Man, we live in a world like this. We live in a humanistic world. Sounds a lot like the time of Babel. Everybody's talking about unity, but God's out of the picture. Everybody's talking about technological advancement. Look at what we can do. Look at AI. Look at how we can unite countries in a cause. Look at us. What do we do? What is God's word say? How do you apply in response to this catastrophe even today and this week? Listen, God's commands are simple, and I'm thankful for that, and they're very clear. Here it is. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. There are the two greatest commandments, repeated by the Lord Jesus himself. You want to apply You want to have a God-oriented life? You want to have a a life that submits and surrenders to the Word of God and not abides by the preachers and the philosophies of the world? Then love God first and love others second before you. Before you. You're not in the picture until you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then you love others as yourself. 
How do I start practically? How do I start practically? If you're a believer today, you, you have the love of Christ in you. You've been saved, transformed by the power of the gospel. Live it out. You're inundated with the world's media, the news, the content, the advertisements. I was just listening to a podcast and let me tell you, it was a quote-unquote Christian podcast. At least they advertised it that way. But all the advertisements I got in this podcast trying to sell me something that would make me feel better, trying to make me do better, trying to improve myself. It was all self-oriented. Man, it's out there. It's everywhere. Coworkers, neighbors, trying to tell you to focus on yourself, do what's best for you. How do I reorient myself. Here's a simple, very practical way to fight against that every day. Start with God. Start every day with God. Not the world. Not yourself. Not what do I need to accomplish today? What do I need to do today? What do I want to do today? Not, hey, let me see what my favorite podcaster has to say. Let me, let me see what the, the music that I like has to say, the musician, the artist. Let me see what the news has to tell me today. No, no, no. Start with God. Start every day listening to God before listening to anyone else. And how do we listen to God? How do we get a word from God today? We read His book, the Word of God. God breathe right here. Listen to God first before you listen to anyone else. Talk to God first before you talk to anyone else. Pray. Communicate with Him before you tell or, tell or talk to anybody else in your day. Start with God and watch that reorient your life. Watch it change you. You claim to love God. You claim to be a follower of God. And yet you give the world the first fruits of the day. Give the world the first word of the first ear, out of love for God and His abundant love for you, go to Him first and watch it change your day. Watch your world change from a self-oriented, self-serving life to a God-oriented, God-serving life. God did not make us to be selfish, to look within to promote ourselves, to boast in ourselves, but for us to depend on Him and serve others. And so this is humanity's defiance, a self-centered, humanistic culture. Point number three, God's providence. So what does God do with this self-centered, humanistic, rebellious, prideful culture? What does God do? God's providence, the same as His order, dispersion. God asked for dispersion. He didn't get it. Oh, bummer. I'll disperse you. You'll spread out. I know exactly how. And that's what God does in this event. What does this word providence mean? To describe God's providence, John Piper uses the English idiom. You know that we say, hey, I'll see to it. Somebody asks us to do something, say, I'll, I'll see to it. What do we mean by that? We're going to make it happen. We're going to bend over backwards to, to see this happen. We'll see to it. We're going to see it through. 
That's God's providence. Yes, he has a sovereign plan. And he not only is, you know, a passively sovereign God, but he's actively sovereign. He, he makes it work. He sees to it. Here's Scripture's definition of God's providence. Here's God's definition of his own providence. Isaiah 46, 9-10. through 10. God says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God will accomplish his purpose. He'll see to it. Not only does he have a sovereign plan, but he sees it through to its very end. By the way, that includes every nation that's risen and fallen in history. It includes every empire that's risen and fallen in history. That includes America. That includes California. That includes you, your life. He has his way. God is not passively sovereign like a lazy captain falling asleep at the wheel. When the boat gets off course, he goes, oh man, I really got to fix this. Now God's sovereignty is like the radar in a homing missile. He's locked into his target. That's his will, his purpose. And he moves every molecule, every person, every creature, every event in history to hit that target. And he does. Sees it through. And so that's God's providence working through this specific event, the Tower of Babel. Looked at, look back down in the text. Verse 5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I think this is funny. Here these men are building this extravagantly big city with this incredibly tall tower. And I just imagine God in heaven going, having a hard time seeing it. I got to go down and see what they're up to. God, God is so much bigger and larger than their puny Lego towers, okay? Look at verse 6. God said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is not God being concerned that humanity is going to outgrow him. Or that humanity is going to advance beyond his sovereign power. That's not what he's concerned about here. God's, he's not concerned that humanity is a threat to him. He's concerned that humanity is a threat to themselves. They are going to undo themselves here. They are going to unravel and spiral in their depravity until the end is their doom and destruction. And in his sovereign providence and his mercy and his grace, God intervenes at a critical time right here so that they don't begin to do things that would take them to the pit of depravity. Not yet. Not yet. God is orchestrating events in history to accomplish his purpose and he's going to intervene at this moment for his glory and these people's good. So God calls a council. They had their council, so God calls his. In verse 7, he says, come, let us. 
go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The author knows what he's doing here. Humanity has their counsel. And so God has his. And whose word stands? Who has the last word? Look at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them. How did we get all these people across the whole world and different languages and different you know, ethnic cultures and different skin colors and different shapes and sizes. The Lord dispersed them. The Lord spread them out from over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. It's an onomatopoeia. Babel, 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 Babel. Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And that's how it happened. From there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Checkmate. You've got to stop your building project because you can't understand each other. I mean, what a merciful way to do this. God promised Noah, I'm not going to flood the earth because of man's sinfulness again. Man, man had corrupted itself back to the point of right before Noah. Totally corrupt, anti-God. He could have come down and like, I don't know, put hail on the city, destroyed it, and like physically pushed them out from the land of Shinar. But in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, he does it in such a, it's such a funny way. Let me just confuse their language so they can't understand each other and they're forced to separate. Isn't God amazing? Aren't his plans so incredible? Beyond human imagination, I mean, no, it's better than the evolutionary theory, I think. A single supernatural act of God to divide and disperse the people from certain destruction. Two things I want you to see in this. First of all, when man sins, God comes down. Didn't you see that? God came down to see the city. The Lord said, Behold, they're one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of the corruption that they'll get into. Come, let us go down. God doesn't cast judgment from the sky. He doesn't point fingers from a throne. God comes down. He condescends in humility. We see this as a foreshadowing of the great condescension of Christ who set aside the glory, stepped off the throne, came down and took the form of a man, taking the approach of a slave, and served us by giving his life as a ransom for many. When man sins, God's not distant. God isn't afar. God doesn't just leave us to unravel. He comes down and he intervenes. Can you think of your testimony? How did you see God's providence And his sovereignty manifests itself in your life and the person that came into your life and shared the gospel with you. The Bible teacher that preached that message that convicted you of your sin. You repented and believed in Jesus Christ. That was God literally coming down into your life. You were not running for God. You were not seeking him. You are not trying your best. God found you at your lowest point. And he gave you the gospel through means, through human people. And he called you to himself. That's God's sovereignty, His providence working through your salvation. When man sins, God comes down and He intervenes mercifully and graciously. 
The second thing that I want you to see is that even when man sins, God gets his way. Man's sin does not mess up God's plan. Our sinfulness, we can rebel all we want. We can rage against God and defy Him, but God gets His way with us. Babel did not thwart the plan of God for nations. Despite man's sinfulness, God accomplished His sovereign purpose. He got the nations that He intended to create. So, This is the origin of nations. This is in some ways your origin story, how you got to where you are today. And it's because of God's sovereignty, God's purposes, God getting his way. Now we might ask, that's the origin of the nations. What is the end of the nations? What's this all coming to? For that, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 7. What's the end of the nations? Revelation 7, verse 9. There's the beginning. This is the end. After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out loud with a loud voice together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Babel was a single supernatural act of God to divide and disperse the nations from certain self-destruction. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, His act of redemption is the single supernatural act of God to unite and redeem the nations for certain salvation. This is the great reversal. God bringing the nations together. Not by society's efforts. No union derived in this world could do what God does. He brings the nations together from different languages to all sing in the same language one message. Salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb. It's the gospel that unites the nations. It's the preaching of the gospel that reconciles ethnicities. It's the living out of the gospel that helps us to love our fellow man despite the color of their skin or their ethnic background. It's the gospel. The gospel unites us. The gospel gets us all there in the end. And it'll be this beautiful, beautiful picture of the manifold wisdom of God when we see people from every nation, every tribe, every language, all people standing before the throne and worshiping the Lamb. They've got one message. Salvation belongs to God. And to the Lamb that was sacrificed for our sins. Amen? That's how God brings all these nations back together. In worship of Him. In their rightful place. Not worshiping themselves, worshiping God. Next week, 
we're going to see as God's redemptive plan unfolds, that he chooses one man to make one nation, and through that nation, God will bless all the nations. The Messiah is promised. That's through the nation of Israel, the man, Abram. So God's plan will continue to unfold as we study the book of Genesis. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we worship you because you are a sovereign God. You are actively controlling and moving in our lives, in our state, in our nation, in history, through every event, king, empire. Although the world and its culture seems grim and hopeless, God, we are hopeful because we worship the sovereign God who works through these means to accomplish His end. So God, we reinstate our trust for You, our dependence upon You. This week, we know through the different problems in our lives, some small, some big, pray that we would depend upon You and walk with You, God, as Noah walked with You. Walk with You as Enoch walked with You as the men of faith depended upon you, even through the difficult and the tumultuous times they lived, they walked with you and depended upon you. Help us to do that. Help us to live God-oriented lives and not self-oriented. God, I pray for any person in this room who has not yet submitted, surrendered to the Lord over all the earth. Pray that even today, as they heard about the selfless condescension of Christ who gave himself as a sacrifice to save us from sins. He's the only way for us to be brought back united with God. He's the only way for different ethnicities to unite together. It's through Jesus Christ. I pray that anybody who does not believe that by faith, that they would surrender, believe today, that you would grant them faith to see, to believe, and to submit and surrender, to kiss the Son, and to take refuge in you, God. I pray you do that work that only you can do in the hearts of people. In Jesus' name, amen.